Well, welcome everybody. We're off-site from the new GUCAS studio today. I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Renu Eepen, who's the co-chair of the... The Ants of 2023 conference. That's right, Declan. We're at the Melbourne uh, Exhibition and Convention Centre or Convention Exhibition Centre, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's Ants of 2023 and Ben Tran and I are co-convening this year and it's been... Uh, it's been a great day so far, and we've got we've got a lot of highlights to bring you, don't we? It's a great meeting, the it's ANZUP great meeting. meeting. So for those of you who don't know, ANZUP is our cooperative uh, oncology trials group here in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, they've run lots of successful trials over the years, really multidisciplinary group uh, led by Ian Davis uh, and colleagues, and uh, they run this very nice annual scientific meeting with a bunch of international uh, guests, and it's m- one of my most favourite meetings, I must say. Yeah, well, a very multidisciplinary meeting, and uh, the theme of this year's conference, Declan, is bouncing back so you know take what meaning you want from it it was Ben Tran's choice um, and I'm sure it you know implies lots of lots of balls of all types basketballs <laughs> testicles yeah. testicular cancer bouncing back after COVID um, you know it's, it's so nice to be back to face-to-face meetings and, and I, I think we're all, we're all happy to be here. So we're going to try and track down a few people to have a chat with. Some yeah, of your friends are yeah. here, some guests, international guests. And also, uh, they put us on the program. Uh, GUCAS got on the program this There's year. There's a GUCAS battle. We yeah. have to get the old boxing gloves out. Yeah. So Declan and I are up against each other in a debate um, about on, your favourite topic. One of yeah. our favourite topics, yep. <laughs> so we've been asked to do a debate on the role of adjuvant immunotherapy in renal cell cancer. As some of you might remember, we'll put a link at the end of the podcast. We had a fantastic debate with uh, Alex Kudukov and Tony Shuari, Ben Tran last year about the Keynote 564 study. So we've been asked yeah. to reprise it. So Except we're arguing against each other. Yeah, Our cosy well, host we, we relationship gave is Keynote, being challenged. That's right. We gave Keynote 564 quite a grilling last time. So yeah. we're going to have to be on opposite ends this time. So we'll who's arguing which way again? I can't, I can't I was, remember. Uh, we better check that program. It's uh, <laughs> I'm uh, inevitably arguing against adjuvant IO and Dr. Eep is going to argue for and there'll be an audience vote who's going to win oh, I'd love to see I'm going to win uh, I don't know I don't know it, it could it could go either way remember there's a lot of medical oncologists in the audience here anyway stay tuned that's coming <laughs> up uh, later in the program but let's go for a wander and see who we can find yeah there's lots of international great guests and great ones and uh, I reckon I can see a couple standing over there so let's go towards them let's do that Declan. So I've got one of our international guests that ends up 2023. This is Dr. Alex Wyatt. He's from the University of British Columbia, Vancouver Prostate Centre. Alex, welcome to ANSA. Welcome to Australia. Thank you, Renee. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and you've done some wonderful talks here and, and your research is fascinating, especially around ctDNA, circulating DNA. Tell us um, about some of the work that you're doing and some of the challenges with using ctDNA. Yeah, thank, thanks for the question. So, yeah, we work a lot with liquid biopsy, particularly in prostate and bladder cancer. And I think there's really two classes um, of kind of assay. One is about can you detect any ctDNA in a person that you think might have cancer, whether that's, you know, in a neoadjuvant, adjuvant uh, setting, and what does that tell you about their disease and their prognosis? And the other is, of course, um, when you have ctDNA present or you know somebody's got metastatic cancer, um, can you help? Can you study the ctDNA, find things in it that can tell you about the biology or the vulnerability to, to different therapies? And, and a BRCA2 mutation would be one of the most obvious things there. Yeah, wow, fascinating. And do you think, do you see a future where we can stop doing tumor biopsies? 
to determine their, you know, suitability for, say, PARP inhibitor yeah. uh, treatment. Yeah. Well, certainly I think the liquid biopsy is a tool to get around repeat biopsy, probably, mm -hmm. yeah. um, certainly in a patient that has metastatic disease. Um, it's, it's probably um, something that can help us get around the fact that archival tissue is not always representative of late-stage disease, right? You have disease evolution, yeah. sampling bias, um, yeah. the cancer can change over time. Um, so a liquid biopsy perhaps can um, be a better snapshot of your metastatic disease yeah. than an archival prostate biopsy tissue. Of your full systemic disease yeah. burden. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, and tell us about some of the other work that you've got going on in the Wyatt lab. What yeah, are your so, other main focus of, <laughs> of, of research? Yeah, so we're actually really trying to understand um, how to integrate liquid biopsy together with tissue profiling as well. Yeah. Um, because we recognize not all patients have high ctDNA yeah. levels, right? They're not all suitable for a liquid biopsy to determine um, actionable alteration status. So we're, we have um, some projects where we're kind of combining tissue with liquid biopsy um, and somewhere we're trying to understand um, how do you use uh, different regions of the primary site to properly understand someone's metastatic disease. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the major focuses of our group these days is also understanding resistance mechanisms yeah. to new therapies Absolutely. like lutetium PSMA. Yeah. So one of the reasons I'm here in Australia is because I collaborate so much with ANZA yeah. to help you know, characterize some of the, the patient samples from their portfolio of trials. Yeah. Um, and like, I'm really excited to find out what are the acquired mechanisms of resistance yeah. to lutetium PSMA. Yeah. I don't think anyone knows Absolutely. for sure yet. Such a yeah. heterogeneous disease, yeah. pop, uh, disease and population. So yeah. this work is so important. And you've got a couple of uh, interesting talks coming up. We look forward to that. And uh, tell us about your time in Australia. What have you enjoyed so far? What are you hoping to do after the conference is over? So, um, yeah, I actually was, um, as a child, lived in, in New Zealand and oh, right. came across to Australia a few times, but I never got to see Melbourne. So yeah. it's been really amazing to, to see this city. Um, the coffee is incredible. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that before coming. Yeah. Um, and I think what I want to do on my last day before I fly home is go for a run along the beach as far as I can. Yeah. <laughs> and you've already been to a footy match. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that tip. was an experience. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you're from Canada, but your accent is very British. Yeah. So you've sort of been all over the place, New Zealand, where else? Yeah. So that's right. I was um, I was born in London, um, and my PhD was actually in the University of Oxford. Okay. And yeah, and I've ended up in Vancouver, Canada, um, via New Zealand, I suppose, as well. So. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, you're a good friend of Australia and a good friend of Anza. Thank you so much for your time today, and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks, Renee. All right, Declan, so I'm here with uh, Laureen Buffett, one of our international guests from the Netherlands. Laureen, you're a human movement scientist. I think that is such a cool term. Um, you're an epidemiologist by trade, and uh, you've done a lot of work on the importance of exercise and exercise research in prostate cancer care. Um, what are your top maybe three messages for our viewers? What? Big message is that exercise has a lot of beneficial effects. Um, you know, you know, side effects from ADT. They're really, uh, you know, you, you, lose, you lose your muscle mass, you, you lose fitness, um, and that thereby the capability of doing your daily functional activities. And exercise has a huge, yeah, uh, influence on improving fitness, improving muscle strength, um, body composition, and thereby allows you to, well, keep doing the 
physical activities that you really like to do, so it has an impact on quality of life. Yeah. Um, uh, I do think uh, we do, yeah, exercise is really important, but, and we do need to tailor it to each individual to make sure, yeah, to really personalize that. Absolutely. Yeah. And how important is it to set up um, like an exercise program when you've got a multidisciplinary team looking after, you know, cancer patients? Yeah, I think um, the supervision in the exercise by, for example, an exercise physiologist is really important uh, on teaching patients how to deal with the side effects and how they can perhaps adjust their exercise uh, uh, yeah, to, to the side effects that they have to deal with. Yeah. Because yeah, your body is different than it used to be before and so that supervision is yeah, really, is really needed. Yeah. 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 Um, so Lauren, I th one, of your, one of the highlights of your many talks at this conference was your ANZUP X talk for me. Um, so for those who don't know, ANZUP X is sort of a free-flowing, conceptual type of presentation. And it's sort of embracing that concept, that delivery of a talk and passion about a topic is really as important as, you know, giving data and facts. And Lauren gave our first ANZUP X talk for the conference, um, and it was about the power of passion in science. Yeah. Yes, it was. Um, and, and it was interesting for me to know, I mean, because you're a keen, avid runner yourself, but that's not what got you into no. doing exercise no. physiology and biology. No, I really liked uh, doing exercise myself, but um, when, you, when I really think about what inspired me to, to do my job is actually to help other people. Yeah. And so many people are affected by cancer, and um, yeah, I hope to contribute with my research that actually helping them to... Good, yeah, to deal with the treatments and to actually sustain, yeah, maintain their quality of life in this really difficult period. Yeah, and you also talked about the importance of keeping up the passion for what you do and the love for what you do. Isn't that right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. And yeah. and when you sort of find that you're losing that, maybe that's the time to take a step back and reevaluate. Yeah, indeed. And and also, you know, some if you're doing too much on the things that you really need to finish rather than you what what you want to do and. Those are the first signs that yeah, you need to reset your priorities, but I, I really want to focus on. So yeah. that's one of the, the, yeah, the things that I remember if I, if I lose my passion. It's usually I need to reset my priorities. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Laureen, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, we've learned so much from you. You're amazing, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Well, thank you. It's been a great conference and really nice to meet all the people here. Thank you. Okay, so I'm here with one of the superstars of the ANZUP conference so far. This is Professor Ananya Chowdhury. Ananya, it was, it's been wonderful to have you here. Have you enjoyed it so far? It's been absolutely fantastic. First of all, I get to come to Australia and not only... Which you meet, love to do. I love to do. <laughs> I love to come to Australia. It's my third visit and each time I get something very special out of it. Yeah. And then I get to come to ANZUP for the first time and meet all sorts of old friends. I've got my ex-fellows here and we've caught up and found out what each other are up to. Old friends from when I did my fellowship out in Canada and then new friends like um, Renu here. It's, <laughs> it's fabulous, it really is. And for our viewers, Ananya, so you're a clinical oncologist um, based at the Christie. I am indeed. Yeah. And you were kind of, you know, your, your first talk yesterday was in the challenges in clinic session that I was chairing, in fact. And um, you were kind of thrown into the lion's den a little bit. And you talked about some of the myths and realities of bladder preservation in muscle invasive bladder cancer. What are your top three messages? So my top three messages are, first of all, Radiotherapy and surgery are equivalent. There should be equipoise when we talk to our patients. And actually, I think all of us who do that find that patients have 
very clear ideas about what the priorities are for them and their treatment. And I have patients who choose to have surgery for very practical reasons, but I also have patients who, given the alternative, will choose not to have surgery. We'll choose to go down a blood transplant route, knowing that the basic therapy is effective, surgery is there as And I think it's absolutely right that we give both these choices to our patients. So that's message number one. Very good, number one. <laughs> message number two is that if you're going to use radiotherapy, you should use a shorter schedule. Okay. So we published a paper comparing six and a half weeks of radiotherapy with four weeks of radiotherapy. And we actually powered that study for equivalence. And to our surprise, and actually to my delight, I f we found that four weeks of radiotherapy was superior to oh. six and a half weeks yeah. of radiotherapy. And that's a win for everyone. Yeah. It's a win for the patient, less numbers of visits to hospital, less um, amount of treatment. It's a win for our departments and it's cost effective. So again, I think that's no brainer. So if patients are going to have radiotherapy, I strongly believe they should have it in sure, four of weeks. Course. Okay. And then I guess my final take home message is there's lots of data out there from the US and actually we recently um, colleagues did a study in the UK showing that bladder patients are undertreated and underrepresented. They often are the, I guess, the poor relatives within our urology services because certainly in my practice, a lot of our time is spent seeing prostate cancer because there are so many men with prostate cancer yeah. that bladder, unfortunately, feels as if it's put to one side. So I think it's really important to have champions for bladder cancer. I think it's really important that we see these patients and offer them treatment because if we don't, there's data out there to say that patients are undertreated. And if we do that, we're not actually doing either our patients or ourselves any real service. And I think that's an important point to have bladder cancer champions because if you're going to set up a good bladder cancer program that requires a very you know it, it, it requires a very multidisciplinary effort Absolutely. doesn't it? Um, and I think that and it's important not just to have the, the doctors involved but the support services around it to, to make sure these patients um, have a good uh, oncological and functional outcome. And I think ANZUP did that brilliantly this year, if I may say so, yeah. because you because there was a very clear voice from our nursing colleagues. Yeah. We have a specialist nurse over here called Rebecca Martin, who also comes from the UK. She's brilliant, yeah. And she has given a couple of really important talks about the patient experience from her perspective, but also from what we should be doing as a team to ensure that patients are supported. Because I'll be absolutely honest, my nursing colleagues are so much better at, at so many of the, I guess, supportive roles compared to us in the medical team. Absolutely. And Ananya, your trip to Australia doesn't end with this conference. What are you planning to do? You're oh. going to make me totally jealous, but what are you planning to do in the next few yeah, days? Yeah, absolutely not. Part of the joy of coming to Australia is not just to do the um, networking and the academic stuff, but it's to see this country, right? <laughs> I mean, how could you not? So having spent some time in Queensland before ANZUP, tonight um, I'm flying up to Darwin. I'm going to go and see Kakadu National Park, and then after that flying to Alice Springs and driving via Kings Canyon to Uluru. So oh I'm goodness. hoping to see as much of Australia <laughs> as I possibly can, just in case nobody invites me back. <laughs> 
Well, more of Australia than I would ever hope to see, I think, in my lifetime. It's been such a pleasure having you. Enjoy it, be safe, um, and we'll hopefully see you again soon. Thank you so much. Okay, so Declan, here I am with uh, Andrea Apollo, one of our international guests uh, here at ANZUP 2023. Welcome, Andrea. You're from the NCI, um, and it's just been such a thrill to have you here at, uh, at the meeting. Um, have you enjoyed it so far? Oh, it's, it's been wonderful to be here. Australia is just so beautiful, and everybody's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> and you've given some amazing talks, but, you know, the most fascinating things you've said have been, have been about the use of biomarkers. Uh, in urothelial cancer, maybe give us the, the top three messages. So I think what's really important is that there's just a daunting amount of biomarkers right now being studied in urothelial carcinoma. And we, we still haven't found um, the biomarker to use for the, the different agents that we use, especially for checkpoint inhibitors. Um, we, uh, I reviewed I reviewed PDL1, I reviewed TMB, we reviewed a lot of the high profile biomarkers and I think one of the exciting things is how they're being incorporated right now into prospective clinical trials. Um, there are clinical trials incorporating ctDNA as integrated biomarkers and uh, subtypes, molecular subtypes yeah. are being integrated. Um, we know that FGFR3 is a target and there are several trials targeting FGFR3. So I think that, you know, as we build upon the biomarkers that are available, we can better select the patients yeah. that would do well with these biomarkers absolutely. and minimize toxicity. Yeah, absolutely. And what are some of the other uh, areas of focus for your research? Yeah, so um, I, I focus um, predominantly on immunotherapy combinations, yeah. uh, targeted therapy. Um, we have um, a lot of uh, exciting things going on right now. Um, I have uh, a trial through the Alliance. I have the Ambassador Trial that we're awaiting the results for. Yep. Uh, that's an adjuvant trial uh, of pembrolizumab in muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Okay. It's completed accrual. Yep. We have a lot of correlatives wow. and biomarkers. I talked about it a little bit yesterday. Yes. Um, we have um, the cabozantinib and nivolumab study for rare tumors called the ICONIC study. Um, and that is enrolling and, and it's expanding in certain rare GU tumors such as squamous cell carcinoma of the bladder, small cell carcinoma of the bladder, um, also urethra cancers, which are... Uh, really uh, an understudied subset of urothelial carcinoma. Um, we have a PARP inhibitor study with a laparive for selected uh, group of patients. Um, and I talked a little bit about this yesterday, but we have um, uh, a specific trial looking at MMR deficiency and mm -hmm. MSI high that is in development uh, where we uh, screen patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer for MSI high and MMR deficiency and then uh, select those patients for treatment with check point inhibitor and potentially bladder preservation. So a lot of exciting wow, things going on. Wow, you're right like now. a powerhouse <laughs> of research. It's amazing. And you know, we were very lucky, Andrea, because we we got a little glimpse into your into your life, you know, the path you've taken to become this incredible superstar that you are now. And you are such an inspiration. Um, my question, I guess, and I'm putting you on the spot a bit here, is if if you could, you know, give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would that be? I think be kind to yourself. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves and we don't know what the future holds. And, you know, we, we, um, uh, we're, we're always uh, 
wondering if what we're doing is right. I think trust yourself and um, enjoy it. Yeah. Sometimes we're just so busy uh, trying to get to the end that we don't enjoy the path. Yeah. And I think I think enjoy it. And I think work-life balance is very important. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times when young when we're young in our careers, we have young children. I think it can be very difficult to kind of um, balance them and and enjoy your work and then also enjoy being with your family and yeah. you always feel guilty that you're spending too much time at work <laughs> or that you're spending too much time with your family. Yeah, it's so a no-win situation. Yeah, I think just enjoy it. I yeah. think I would tell myself to enjoy it a little bit more and just kind of, um, you know, the, the, you know, no matter what the future kind of brings as long as you enjoy what you're doing and you're doing your best that's all yeah. you can do so fantastic there you are folks dr andrea polo an absolute superstar and keep an eye out for more amazing work from her all right declan so i'm super excited i'm here at ANZ of 2023 with none other than darren feldman uh, from the memorial sloan kettering cancer center in new york welcome darren to australia and to ANZA. thank you so much great to be here my first time in australia having yeah. a wonderful time Good. What have sort of been the highlights of, of the meeting so far for you? Well, just uh, get the chance to see, make new friends, see yeah. old friends, yeah. um, hear the latest updates in GU Oncology, and well, I enjoyed the my, debates. Yeah, and the debates. <laughs> we'll get to the debates in a minute. Well, some of my highlights have been your talks, actually. You know, um, this year the theme is bouncing back, which really indicates a bouncing back after COVID. But a strong um, implication is testicular cancer, of course. Um, and you gave a fabulous talk in the opening plenary yesterday um, that was uh, focusing really on challenges in the clinic in GU Oncology. And you, you took us through some of the, the myths and pitfalls in, in, in managing germ cell tumours. Um, maybe you could give us an overview of what, what are the, I mean, you, you went through a lot of cases, a lot of them your own actually, and it was really fascinating to see how these patients are managed. But maybe you could give us a, a couple of the, the pitfalls to avoid in managing germ cell tumours. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it's really critical since this disease hasn't had much new really developed in the last 20, 25 years. We don't have a new drug. What we need to do is adhere to our guidelines and our standards and not veer off course. That's what we can do most to help our patients. So that's what I was trying to get across to the audience. So a couple of things, um, you know, and they're not all earth shattering. You know, some of them are just, you know, kind of simplistic, but really important. So for one thing, um, I do see in my practice that sometimes uh, others will use the pre-orchiectomy tumor markers to make decisions about uh, treatment of patients. And it's the post-orchiectomy markers that have prognostic implications, management implications, and what we use for staging. And so it's really critical. People can get over-treated or under-treated if you use the pre-orchiectomy rather than the post-orchiectomy Well, that's really important to, yeah. Another uh, pitfall is uh, also going along with the tumor markers is that patients with uh, poor risk germ cell tumors who start with a very high HCG, that HCG can often decline very slowly at the end of treatment. Okay. And it doesn't mean that the patient is actually resistant to chemotherapy. It just may take a little longer to um, declare itself. So it's better to monitor the HCG decline and wait for it to either rise or fall to normal or near normal before making a decision and not just jump into salvage chemotherapy. Right, yeah. I mean, sometimes these these simple, logical things are really profound uh, to kind of keep reminding ourselves, uh, you know, not just in the everyday clinic, but also in the multidisciplinary setting when we're discussing these cases and the patients are not exactly in front of us. 
What about the role of, say, PET imaging in, in germ cell tumour? Because we do see this used quite often, you know, we're fairly liberal in Australia mm. with our use of PET imaging, especially for prostate cancer, but what is your take on the role of PET imaging in germ cell tumours? I think the problem is um, if you're getting a test, you need to know how to interpret it, yeah. and that interpretation can be very disease specific. Yeah. So. In germ cell tumor, we have a problem called teratoma. Yeah. And teratoma is a real problem that needs to be managed, but it's negative on PET scan. Right. And so what gets people into trouble is that the sensitivity of PET scan is low because it does not account for teratoma. And what I've seen in practice is a patient will get chemotherapy after chemotherapy for, let's say, non-seminoma, which is where we have to deal with teratoma. They have a PET scan for like a three centimeter residual mass that three centimeter mass could have teratoma, yeah. it's PET negative, they say, oh, no, nothing to worry about, we'll just watch that patient instead of what the standard is, is to operate on that yeah. patient, it doesn't really matter, the PET scan's not going to help you, it's not going to differentiate between teratoma yeah. and necrosis. So really take care in using these um, to, to kind of impact on your management decisions. Right. Um, you gave a great debate today um, against Howard Gurney about the use of either observation or BEP chemotherapy in stage one non-seminomatous germ cell tumour. Um, how do you manage these patients in your own practice? Sometimes you, you have to defend a point of view in a debate, but what's your, what's your practice like? Well, I do think it's a pretty clear consensus uh, you know, around the world that patients who, don't ha who have stage one non-seminoma and do not have lymphovascular invasion or risk factors for metastatic disease, those patients really should be managed with surveillance. They have a less than 20% risk of relapse. There's no benefit in adjuvant treatment to, towards survival, and you'd be over-treating the vast majority of patients. And so it's very similar to stage one seminoma, yeah. where we also prefer to manage those patients with surveillance. Yeah. The patients who have lymphovascular invasion is a more complex group. It's definitely very controversial. In my practice, I do discuss all three options with yeah. patients. I believe firmly that patients need, the doctor's job is not to make the decision for the patients, yeah. it's to educate them so they can Absolutely. make the best decision possible. Yeah. And so um, I talk to them about the benefits of either surveillance, one cycle of BEP, or primary RPLND. Our institution tends to, to uh, lean toward primary RPLND because we're most concerned about the long-term risks of chemotherapy, yeah. and that leads to the least number of patients undergoing chemotherapy yeah. in the end. Well, I mean, one of the great things about this conference is we've gotten to know you a little bit personally as well. And uh, we were at a dinner together recently, and Darren told us that he was, in fact, bitten by a monkey. <laughs> it was hilarious. Has that made you a little bit nervous around the, you know, the animals of Australia? Have you come across any that you've thought, actually, I don't want to no. repeat? Maybe, maybe I didn't learn from my mistakes, but um, I've actually had the opportunity while here to pet some kangaroos Fantastic. and uh, did not get bitten. They, there you go. And I also fed some kangaroos and uh, there you I, go. I enjoyed and, it. So. And live to tell the tale. I live to tell the tale. It's been wonderful having you here, Darren. I hope you enjoy the rest of the meeting and thank you so much for educating us on germ cell tumors. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here.
may or may not know that I'm both um, Declan and Renu um, have a podcast called Do You Cast? Um, very slick production. Um, so normally they're co-chairing, but we've got them on the opposite sides of the table. So gloves are off this morning. So I'll invite Declan up first. Thank you. Two against one already. Jeez. So uh, thanks very much for this invitation and for allowing uh, us, um, the cozy GUcast uh, co-hosts, to have a crack at each other. And this is, I think, deliberate sabotage from our rivals in the podcasting industry who are trying to, it's like breakfast TV show host wars when they're trying to, you know, what's Kochi doing this week? What's Carl doing? This is the Carl and the whoever is on Channel 9 at the moment, uh, of the world of GU podcasting. So I've been giving this easy argument, come on, adjuvant, adjuvant, adjuvant anything, to be honest with you, uh, us surgeons look extremely skeptically at. This is very well people we've just operated on, the majority of whom are cured, and you want to do what to them? Okay, you, you, need to, you need to be very convincing uh, to try and get people like us to send people like you, medical oncologists and uh, GU medical industry, uh, our lovely, mostly cured patients. So that's what I'm going to try and prosecute to you for the next few minutes. Um, so my disclosures, what I've put up on this slide is uh, myself and Renu's um, uh, disclosures on GUcast because uh, um, this podcast has been running for uh, over three years now and um, it's got quite popular actually around the world. The vast majority of our audience are international. Um, although we have a video podcast, you'll see bits of that during my art to support my argument this morning. Um, the vast majority of our audience are on uh, Apple and Spotify. Um, and as we became more ambitious and tried to create more content, we, um, and responding to um, uh, suggestions from industry that they'd like to support the podcast, we created a partnership program. So our sort of inaugural partners that we're about to put up on the website um, are listed on the slide here. So we're very grateful to them, even you, MSD, uh, for uh, supporting the podcast. Um, I think your contract is for a year, so it doesn't matter what I say, you know, that's it. Yeah. Uh, and thank you very much for supporting um, uh, our ongoing educational program. So I've got five good reasons, just to keep it simple, five good reasons to say no to adjuvant immunotherapy for renal cancer. I'm going to summarize them here uh, already, and I'm going to run through these over the next few minutes. And it's kind of obvious, like nearly all the adjuvant trials are negative for their rather mediocre endpoints. They can't even reach the endpoint, which is not overall survival for the vast majority of them. The one positive trial that we'll talk about doesn't even improve survival for these mostly cured patients. The side effects are unacceptable uh, in the view of most of us surgeons, unless you show to us that these patients are going to live longer or live better. And how does immunotherapy help you live better when most, you're mostly cured from your uh, oncology condition anyway? And the costs are nuts. We'll talk about that. And I will say to you that overall, for these adjuvant populations, we're much better off waiting for early salvage because the salvage options that you have for us are so good. But I, I should reflect on the perilous state of the GU medical oncology industry uh, before I launch into another attack on the GU medical oncology industry. This is from today's Oncology Daily, uh, describing the industry in crisis as metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer disappears forever out of the grasps of medical oncologists and back into the grasps of urologists. Um, and I'll show you two slides to highlight that. The first one is bye-bye chemo. 
uh, in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. This is the biggest crisis facing those of you with expensive school fees and a mortgage on your second house um, who thought you were going to be in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Those of you who have expensive bicycles, who go on bicycle holidays, think, I've got, I've got metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. It's, no, no, bye-bye. This is what I've been saying about it just this past week. History will record docetaxel as having had but a brief role in metastatic hormone-sensitive... You know that nice timelines they show, Huggins up to... Where, where, and in the middle, there'll be this bit from Chris Sweeney to about five years later, where docetaxel had a brief role. Now it's gone. It's gone. We, we have AR pathway inhibitors. Simple urologists like me and Renew know how to give these drugs, and we're not going to give chemo to these patients anymore. I've been punching home the message saying, there is no evidence adding chemo will help you live longer. It'll certainly worsen your quality of life. The triplet crusaders, I'm now badging them, who are saying, no, 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 because of this, and blah, 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 blah. We should add, no, there's no evidence adding chemo to metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer helps. And I keep just parroting the same line over and over and over again. So I, I understand, you know, this is uh, upsetting a few people around the world, but it's the reality check that urologists are back in charge of metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Crisis number one uh, for GU Medical Oncology. Crisis number two, getting into our theme of immunotherapy, reflects the uselessness of trying to do immunotherapy in any type of prostate, any type of prostate cancer. And when Niraj, you know, tweeted out a few months ago saying, breaking news, another huge setback to immunotherapy and metastatic CRPC, phase three, massive trial, phase two, improve outcomes, blah, blah, blah. Big sigh, totally unsurprising for me. Yet another failed trial of immuno-oncology and metastatic prostate. Can we please stop now? It's never going to work. The toxicity is not okay. The costs are ludicrous, hence the enthusiasm try a different cancer. And I'm building towards my argument for renal cell carcinoma, you'll see in some of these messages. But not everyone agrees with me. I mean, our, our esteemed chair of ANZUP immediately tweeted back saying, I'm not giving up on immunotherapy for prostate cancer just yet. There's every reason to think it should work. I'm the same. If I think hard enough, I'll lose weight or something. If I think about something, I just think about it. Uh, and something magical will happen. Let me tell you, it's not going to happen with immunotherapy and prostate cancer, right? <laughs> so please stop doing it. Us urologists don't want to send you, we definitely don't want to send you patients for immunotherapy for prostate cancer. Uh, and I'll explain now why we're not going to send you patients for adjuvant uh, renal cancer as well. So yeah, this is the podcast. Um, thank you to, for those of you who know, already uh, are part of our audience who subscribe and send us uh, nice ratings. This is from our new studio that we just did our first podcast from last week, which means we can do a lot more content now because we're set up in a kind of a permanent setting, which is great. Um, and this is the podcast we did uh, last in August 2021, uh, talking about um, uh, Keynote 564, the, the, the positive trial that we'll talk about today. And I'm going to show you a few clips from this trial. So yeah, you were there. You were on it. Ben Tran, yep, you were there. I said, what did I say? Fur what did I say? Yeah, exactly. You'll soon find out, Ben. Right, let's go. One, two, three, four, five. Almost all these trials are negative. So this is a, a caption competition. What do you think this is? Or does anyone know who this is? Bob, Bob, Bob Motzer. Bob Motzer, poor Bob. Does this one work? Bob Motzer. Bob is a GU medical oncologist. Does he not look like a GU medical oncologist who's reading out another negative adjuvant immunotherapy trial in renal cancer. <laughs> That's what they look like. There. And there are hundreds of photos of the, like these on the internet of GU medical oncologists reading out negative adjuvant IO trials. This one is from, it was, it was like a festival. They had a festival last year 
in Europe called ESMO. It was a festival of negative adjuvant trials. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Bob when he had a positive trial before this. Look, same picture. So this is what it is, and this is from I think ESMO News. Like this is the industry trying to put a positive spin on three or four. I can't remember how many negative trials. Yeah, they all just came up on stage and moped off again and, you know, went on to Euro Amigos and tried to put a positive spin on it as usual, you know. Uh, so that's, that's the reality. The, the trials are almost all... Oh, there is one positive trial. The approved one. The one the FDA approved. The Americans love approvals. Approvals means they can bill for it. That, that's what it means. Is it approved? No, it's not approved. But can we bill? Can we blah, blah, blah. What about the, the positive trial, the, this famous trial? And some of the authors are in the audience. Howard, I see Howard. David Quinn is a bit early. David... No. <laughs> um, so yeah, of course, eminent investigators. I'm not having a, a go at the investigators. This is a very you know, well-designed study. I'm having a go at the endpoint, though. So what are these patients? They're 60, 75% are outside the US. That's very important when you consider the control arm. 86% are exactly the sort of patients Renew operates on, these intermediate to high-risk patients, um, as we see here. So they're not all super high-risk. Lots of them are T2, grade 3, whatever, prostate cancer. And this is the the famous endpoint that everyone's excited about, that the DFS is a bit different if you treat everybody with immunotherapy up front versus watch them, and what happens to the ones you watch, you might ask. But it's also very important to see on this control arm a few years later that the vast majority of patients in the control arm, of course, haven't recurred. That's because they had a nice operation and they're cured of their cancer, and they're living perfectly happy with no treatment whatsoever. Uh, and that's very, very important. And this is the overall survival. There's no difference in overall survival. What about if you follow it up a bit longer? This is the, the subsequent 30-month data. Yep, the DFS holds up. Okay, breaking news. It didn't deteriorate more than we might have thought. But the OS, no difference, of course. So what does this mean? Let, let's listen to what we talked about on the podcast. Do we have a sense in the control arm that when the patients do relapse, are they getting a combination IOs, which we would consider to be standard of treatment? Because presuming that they're not actually getting or managing and that's true. And if you look at this forest plot, you'll see that there's a difference between the ones who were in North America and the ones who weren't. And so the question is, what proportion of the control arm buried in the supplement of the second publication, when they relapsed, the small proportion who relapsed, 25%, whatever, what proportion got what you would consider to be standard of care for metastatic prostate, uh, what's the cancer again? Kidney cancer. Uh, kidney cancer. Uh, what proportion? Well, less than half. Right, so as ever with a lot of industry-sponsored trials, it's rigged. The control arm is rigged. Let's make sure a lot of these patients are in Poland where there's going to be no access to immunotherapy, even though in Poland everyone on the adjuvant arm got their Pembro up front. But in Poland, when you relapsed, did you? no, you didn't. You got a bit of uh, old-fashioned TKI of some sort. So that's the problem, and that's what I'll prosecute in the final bit to say, come on, this, this is uh, not fair. It's not fair. It's not the way any of you practice here, because when we send you a patient uh, that has relapsed early, you're going to treat them with fabulous combination IO, which is, which is, is what should be uh, our comparator here. What about the side effects? I'm not going to go on about this. It's kind of the obvious thing. These are perfectly well patients, the majority of whom are cured, and of course they're going to have side effects. And side effects can be very serious for this population. Uh, this is the uh, table S4 in the second publication, 
um, which goes on for five or six pages. I had to make a video about it. The table was so long and uh, my eye gets caught on the diabetes, of course. You take these well patients and turn them into diabetics or render them blind due to their retinitis, let alone, let alone all the common stuff, the colorectal stuff. So what Toxicity and side yeah. effects. What does Renew think about this? That's definitely a big this? concern uh, for us urologists, Renew, isn't it? So, yeah, um, exactly. And uh, like you mentioned, Ben, it's, it's the tolerability of these treatments and, and yeah. the, the, the fact of over-treatment and potentially avoiding these side effects in patients who may not need treatment until they become <laughs> N1 or ever need treatment at all. How do we, how do we balance that? And I, oh, well, you're right. We can't balance it, Renew. I totally agree with you. But what about Tony Shuari uh, and Alex Kudakov? What do they think but, about um, this? Tony, I want to play you a clip from your mate, uh, Tom Powell's, when he discussed uh, this with you uh, on the Euromigos podcast recently. Big shout out to them. We love your podcast. The look um, on Tony's face. When and Tony, we had a conversation with James Larkin. We had podcast with him. And what James said that the melanoma field are learning is that there are some irreversible, dev potentially devastating side effects. And you'll need to see those once or twice and it really focuses the mind. What, what worries you about most about that statement? Yeah, I think it's really worth it. <laughs> Um, and the costs. Let's talk about the costs. So this is a paper from our, our old friend Vinay Prasad. Uh, sorry, okay, going on. Um, what does it cost? This, it costs, look at this. I thought it was 600,000 per event. It's $1.6 million you have to spend on Pembro to prevent one event in the adjuvant setting. It's nuts, right? So you're going to have to treat all these patients and to save one event, $1.6 million. Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna cut. So this is crazy. And Alex, uh, we, the cost, we can't afford uh, this. It's not just linked to the drug, right? This is administered in a day therapy center. It's, yeah. um, it's all that involved. All the extra blood tests we'll be doing. So there's quite a significant cost to society for giving this treatment. Yes, yeah. for that reason, I think the gastroenterologist, the pulmonologist, yeah. uh, endocrinologist, <laughs> etc. And therefore, we shouldn't do that. We should do early salvage, which is exactly what our friend Alex Kudakov I mean, said to you know, Tony. Tony's fancy forest plots and his hazard ratios, you know, won't, won't fool the surgeons to send all of our patients we'll to, fool, you know, take Dr. showers. I mean, it's just not, not, not what <laughs> we're going to do. The data are preliminary, the risks are real, and the costs, the costs, Tony, are astronomical, right? So before we dive in, I would like, I would like... And that's it. That's what I'm going to say. The costs are nuts. And the challenge the GU medical oncology industry, uh, the clinicians and the, the, the uh, actual pharma industry have is convincing us urologists who love these patients, who've operated on them, the vast majority of them are cured, convince us that there's a benefit in treating all of these patients, exposing them to toxicity, no survival benefit, etc. It's not going to happen. And I'll hand over to my colleague, Dr. Epen, to try and uh, argue against me. Dr. Epen. I think it's working. Is that working? Yeah. I'm going to stand over here because the lectern is too tall and I don't want to compromise my position. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you know, my esteemed colleague Declan Murphy certainly has the gift of articulation, but I'm going to try and convince you uh, to not be fooled by his cheery disposition and his Irish accent. He's completely wrong and he's completely missed the point. Um, and I'm going to try and convince you that adjuvant immunotherapy for renal cell cancer is a great idea. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for surgeons and urologists in particular, but Declan, you know, you and I both know that surgeons... Oh. How do I do this? Play? Huh. 
Surgeons are just technicians. They're silly technicians. They come along, you know, they cut out the kidney, they take out the tumour, and then they go away, you know, they sit around and drink a little bit of scotch and smoke a couple of cigars, and they pat each other on their backs for a job well done. You know, you've cured this patient. Meanwhile, six months later, this poor patient recurs. They develop metastatic disease, and then it's up to the medical oncologist to now try and save their lives or in the worst case scenario, nurse them towards an inevitable death. And this is just a situation that happens too often and we have to put a stop to it. And we know at the end of the day that it's the medical oncologists that actually cure these patients. We know this. So why should we embrace adjuvant immunotherapy? Well, recurrence after surgery is common. Depending on the grade and stage of the disease that you're treating, recurrence after surgery is up to 80%. So we're not curing these patients. And the problem with recurrence is, is that it causes death. Recurrence is devastating. We, not, we do not want to be in clinic in a situation with a patient three months after their surgery looking at these CT scans. This is not a situation that I want to be in, and it's certainly not a situation that these patients want to be in. And renal cell cancer is a highly immunogenic tumour. There's plenty of T cells within the tumour microenvironment of renal cancer. T cells, for some reason, flock to RCC, like you know, people flock to the MCG to see the footy. There's plenty of them there. And it is up to us to improve the quality and the function of these T cells uh, using adjuvant immunotherapy drugs. And it's really important that we do this. Now, surgeons find the concept of uh, immunology really confusing, uh, so I'm going to keep this really simple, otherwise I, I might not be able to explain it myself. But, um, you know, we know that tumours uh, protect themselves by avoiding and evading the immune response. So what happens, and there's a really scientific explanation for this, so when there's a renal tumour, there's an antigen-presenting cell that takes Declan's falling asleep, but bear with me. There's an antigen-presenting cell that will take a little sample of the tumour antigen and it will present this sample on MHC class 2 to a T cell. The T cell will recognise it and will start to bind. But as soon as that happens, CTLA-4 on the T cell will bind to CD80 and CD86 and it's like an off switch for the immune system. It causes immune tolerance. So anti-CTLA-4 drugs prevent that interaction and it allows the T cell to activate and proliferate and kill the tumour cell. In a similar way, tumour cells can also present themselves to T cells, and this is why MHC class 1. And we have evidence to show that renal cells will express both MHC class 1 and class 2. But when the tumour cells, um, when the T cells recognise MHC class 1, PD-1 will bind to PDL one on the uh, tumour cell, and again, it's an off switch for the immune system. So anti-PD-1 drugs like pembrolizumab and nivolumab and anti-PD-L1 drugs like atezolizumab will block that interaction and allow the T-cell to proliferate and go off and kill the tumour cell. So there's a real explanation to how and why these drugs work. So what's the problem? Well, Declan mentioned this, there are many negative trials. And it's true, you know, we've seen Checkmate 914, combination of EP-NEVO, not show a benefit. We've seen the Emotion trial, not show a benefit. But we have one positive trial. Let's not let all that noise distract us from the fact that Keynote 564 is the almost holy grail of adjuvant immunotherapy in renal cell cancer. 
And we can scratch our heads and fry our brains thinking about why all these other trials were negative. And the truth is there are lots of reasons why these trials were negative. The trial designs were different, patient selection was different, the treatments were different. We know from Checkmate 914 that um, uh, anti-seed TLA4 drugs are toxic. Ipilimumab is not a very nice drug. And in this trial, so many patients discontinued the combination treatment that they didn't spend enough time getting the drug that would actually help them, which is nivolumab. And sure enough, we see in Keynote 564 and in the EMOTION trial that there was a much lower rate of um, high-grade adverse events. What about the EMOTION trial? Well, this uses a different drug. It's atezolizumab. It's a PDL1 inhibitor. It has a different molecular target. The patient selections were different in these other trials. Tumor histology is different. Now, I know that Declan doesn't really like to read anything that's over about 280, 300 characters, but instead of reading all the tweets, if he'd actually bothered to read the manuscript of Keynote 564, he would realize that there, in fact, are a lot of strengths in this trial. You know, it's a well-run, randomized phase three trial. The study population, sure, they're at a heterogeneous risk of relapse, but the majority of the patients on the trial did have T3 disease or higher. The trial was enriched for patients who had pdl one positive tumors, which is a perfect target for a PD-1 inhibitor like pembrolizumab. The percentage of patients who had a partial nephrectomy and local relapse were low, so that really highlights the benefits of pembrolizumab were really due to a lower incidence of distant recurrence uh, compared to placebo, and that's really important. And the trial didn't censor deaths without tumor progression. So the, they really limited the overestimation of the disease-free survival. So the disease-free survival benefit is real. Declan, you just have to trust it. And the importance for that is that it benefits our patients. Um, you can see these curves here. Declan's already pointed it out. Um, these, you know, the, the survival curves remain, uh, the DFS uh, curves remain separate at, at the updated 30-month uh, analysis. Um, we don't have overall survival data yet, but that's not really their fault. I mean, only a third of the death events that were required to analyze it have occurred. That's a good thing. But we're seeing a trend towards um, uh, better overall survival with pembrolizumab. And for now, that's, that's pretty good. It's well tolerated. You know, the most common high-grade adverse event was hypertension. There was a bit of autoimmune thyroiditis. And I think Declan underestimates himself because I truly believe that even Declan can manage these side effects. You know, if all else fails, you give some steroids, Declan, and if that fails, you know, you've, you've got a great team of medical oncologists surrounding you to help you out with this. Importantly, there were no treatment-related deaths. That's important. I mean, that, that's more than I can say for a lot of surgical treatments. We just heard about the SWOG trial where significantly more patients died from an extended lymph node dissection compared to a standard lymph node dissection. This treatment doesn't kill anyone. And if we really needed another reason to be convinced, it's FDA approved. And we all know what that means. That's our green light to go forth and start prescribing pembrolizumab. But it's a very misunderstood trial. And, you know, Declan um, showed you a lot of video of, of, of you know, GUcast and the podcast really grilling Keynote 564. Um, you know, and I, I think it's really unfair that these urologists, I mean, I recognize Declan, I have no idea who that is, and I'm, I'm pretty sure all the audio you heard of me was actually talking about prostate cancer, not, not uh, renal cancer. But they teamed up with, you know, another prominent urologist, Alex Kudakov, and they used the typical surgical techniques of 
bullying and intimidation to completely overwhelm these two poor medical oncologists when all they were trying to do was defend a trial and a drug that truly helps their patients. And I think this is a real shame and it really shouldn't happen. So in my mind, the question shouldn't be, is there a role for adjuvant immunotherapy? The question should be, what is the future after adjuvant immunotherapy? Do we use combination treatments? If patients progress on adjuvant immunotherapy, can we re-challenge with immunotherapy? What about tumor vaccines? We should be throwing a lot of money at answering these questions. So in the spirit of ANZUP, these are my top five reasons to use adjuvant immunotherapy for high-risk renal cell cancer. So coming in at number five, we may be able to save patients from developing recurrence and metastatic disease. Why do you want to use multiple drugs to salvage these patients when you can use a single agent to prevent this from happening ever? We've seen a significant disease-free survival demonstrated in a well-run phase three randomized control trial, and we're seeing a trend towards better overall survival. The third top reason, Pembrolizumab is well tolerated. There's minimal toxicity, there are no deaths. This is a great drug. Number two, there's no better option for these patients. Um, you know, and surgeons really need to get behind this because if we really want our patients to be cured, we need to send them to a medical oncologist. Patients at the very least deserve to have an open discussion about this and make an informed decision. And my number one top five reason to use adjuvant immunotherapy for renal cell cancer you ready? Don't throw anything at me. My number one reason for using adjuvant immunotherapy for high-risk renal cell cancer is the Medongs have already lost metastatic hormone-sensitive <laughs> prostate cancer to urologists. Please, let's at least give them adjuvant immunotherapy. Thank you. Right, uh, you might be wondering why on earth would we be asking Henry Wu to adjudicate a debate on renal cell carcinoma when I just do prostate? Well, I guess that um, knowing that this was going to be such a toxic debate, um, it was probably appropriate that you have a urologist who has no skin in the game. But wait, people think that, well, hang on a second, Declan Murphy doesn't do much um, you know, with renal cell carcinoma these days, but don't be fooled by the fact that uh, he is doing predominantly prostate cancer. This man knows a lot about renal cell carcinoma because we're interviewing people regularly on the GU cast. And also you can see that, uh, you know, he actually went to a lot of trouble to prepare for this in that he uh, uh, left the dinner last night, particularly early, unlike Howard Gurney there, who still looks like, uh, looks, uh, like he's been uh, doing Saturday Night Fever uh, for the last, you know, 24 hours. But uh, uh, he went off to study, and uh, um, so, uh, plus, he was, uh, apart from the study there, he was counting on that Irish charm, and uh, I have to hand it to him that uh, he managed to produce a very good argument there, even though about 90% of it had nothing to do with kidney cancer. <laughs> but that said, I think that people could say that uh, it's, it's, you know, we're all fair people and that uh, I think we could argue there's been a bit of a setup. And um, on that note, when you consider, when you consider these comments, I'd like you to, uh, so I'd like you to consider these comments when I ask you to 
um, ask for a vote on who you thought was the winner of this debate. Then I'll have a few comments about the vote. So, firstly, who, the, who, who feels that Declan Murphy provided the argument that uh, uh, supports uh, no to adjuvant treatment? Can you raise your hands? Okay, and if you could uh, have a vote for those who uh, feel that Renew uh, won this debate. Yes. Now, oh no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Um, you know, we're all people of science here. We don't just simply go on, you know, a bunch of data thrown at us. We need to know if this is statistically significant or not. And I've just done a quick run of the chi-squared analysis in my head, and I think that there's no statistical significance between um, the votes for Declan and uh, uh, Renu when we look at, when we look at uh, urologists versus medical oncologists in this audience. There's a trend to <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm sure you'll all agree that uh, this is a, a uh, you know, fun debate uh, in spite of the toxicity. And uh, I'd like to put you, get you to uh, put your hands together for both Renu and uh, Declan. So there you have it, folks. Highlights from the ANZUP 2023 conference in Melbourne. We've had a, a fun few days of multidisciplinary collaboration and learning uh, and making some good friends. Uh, we look forward now to next year's conference, which is going to be held in Queensland by our co-conveners, Matt Roberts and Aaron Hansen. I'm sure it's going to be a great meeting. Definitely some better weather, I think, for sure. But we'll see you then. Thank you.